0: Well, if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Welcome again to Trinity Grace, especially for those that are guests this morning. We're really glad that you're here with us. And some of you will know that we're in a series over the past few weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And as we look at this sermon from Jesus, it's important to remember that Jesus is painting a picture for his disciples of what life in his kingdom looks like. Jesus is giving us a picture of the good life in this sermon. He's giving us a picture of an ethic and a way of life that runs with the grain for our design as human beings. While these teachings from Jesus are are giving us a glimpse into how life is intended to work, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus' teaching will be easy to practice for you and me. In many ways, the deck is stacked against us. Uh, We've talked about how counterintuitive some of these teachings from Jesus actually are. Especially as we compare them to what our culture values. Not only do we live in a culture that actively seeks to persuade us to adopt its values, which are oftentimes uh, butting heads with the values that Jesus wants to adopt, we also find that our own hearts are often opposed to Jesus' ethic and way of life in the way that he calls us to. So the world in which we live... Our own hearts, they're all bent in on themselves, which makes Jesus' words to us and following his way of life even more challenging. But as we trust Jesus, as we grow in our understanding of his love for us, as the Spirit works on our hearts to make us more like him, we find that we're actually able to adopt this way of life that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we live as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we experience true freedom. We experience real joy. We can experience deep wholeness in life. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the beautiful life. The life that honors God. The life that brings you and me true happiness. The the life that blesses our friends and our neighbors. It's the kind of life that Jesus led, and it's the kind of life that he gives you and I the power to lead as well. It's an exciting adventure that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we talked about how Jesus came to fulfill God's law on our behalf. He didn't come to get rid of God's authority. He didn't come to get rid of it, but to establish it. In the rest of chapter 5, we see Jesus do just that. He seeks to deepen or to fill out God's original attentions when it comes to his commands. Remember last week, Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, now Jesus is going to explain just what he means by a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going to show us that obedience is more than just external actions. It's about what's happening in our hearts at a motivational level. Jesus drills down deep in this passage, showing us what it really means to be pure in heart as his followers. To see how Jesus begins doing this, you follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5. It's printed for you in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. So let me pray for us before we consider it together this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your hard words, for words that point us to the deficiencies in our own hearts, but that also point us to the sufficiency that you provide through your life, through your death, through your resurrection. We pray that we would see that sufficiency this morning, that we would rest in it, and that it would lead us to live lives of wholeness and freedom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I remember eight years ago when Rachel and I were moving to San Antonio and we were looking to buy a house in the city, and we made a few different visits on house hunting trips, and as we drove around the city looking at lots of different houses, one thing stood out more than any other, and it was a characteristic of almost every house that we looked at a few years back, and the thing that stood out to us were the cracks that we saw in the interior walls of the houses that we looked at. It seemed like every house we looked at had cracks in the sheetrock, normally developing around the corners of the doors and the windows. And where we're from, this is not normal. Um, And it worried us as we looked at houses with crack after crack after crack. But we soon came to realize that this was a normal thing for homes in San Antonio. It's all because of the soil on which lots of these houses are built. You see, lots of the soil in San Antonio, especially if you're inside the 410 loop, is made up of clay-like substance. And so when it rains, the soil expands a lot. And when we experience drought, the soil contracts. And this expansion and contraction of the soil causes the house to shift, which causes the drywall to crack. In fact, in our house now, and even our old house, you'd notice cracks open up during dry spells and then close back up during the rainy spells that we would experience. And we noticed that as we looked at houses around the city, that some people would try to hide the cracks in their walls by smoothing over them with plaster and by painting over them uh, with touch-up, kind of getting rid of the imperfections. And of course, as a a home seller, this was a short-term fix in many ways. Because once the expansion and the contraction of the soil continued, the cracks were going to open up in these homes. They were going to open back up. The only way to fix the problem, as you've likely heard on radio or TV, is to stabilize the foundation. Have somebody come to your house and to stabilize it from the foundation, which normally costs tons of money. These people that we were looking, uh, their homes, they were trying to sell their homes. They were trying to take care of cosmetic issues by patching and painting over the real problem. Not really dealing with the root issue, which was the foundation. People were treating it as an aesthetic problem when it was really a structural problem. They'd fix the appearance without addressing the foundation. And it's a helpful picture to have in our minds when you think about what Jesus is addressing in this passage. The Pharisees and the scribes, and oftentimes you and me, are more concerned with how things look on the outside than we are with the structural integrity. Jesus is addressing those of us who are more concerned with the aesthetics of our behavior than with the structural problems that are found in our hearts. You and I are good at looking good on the outside. We're all about the outward appearance, especially in our culture where image means so much. In our world, especially in northwest San Antonio, it's all about what you project. But Jesus doesn't allow us to keep living that way. He knows that we can look good on the outside. We can have it all together externally while slowly wasting away from the inside. So he comes in this passage and he exposes a structural problem that we all have. We see in this passage that Jesus is concerned with our heart. He's not so much concerned with us looking good. He's concerned with the foundation. And so Jesus comes and he addresses the foundation. He's slowly remaking us to live as we were created to. He wants us to walk in newness of life that leads to freedom and wholeness. And so we're going to look at this passage this morning, and as we do, we're going to consider it under three headings. First, we're going to look at the external, then we're going to look at the internal, and then we're going to look at what it means to live from the inside out, from the internal to the external. First, let's take a look at the external. We see Jesus addressing the external aspects of obedience in verses 21 and 27 of our passage. This external aspect of obedience is often referred to as the floor of the law, okay? Go with me here for a minute. By floor, we're talking about the base level of what is expected in the law. It's the bare minimum. But we see Jesus introduce the floor in these verses by saying, You've heard that it was said. In verse 21, he's touching on the sixth commandment. You've heard that it was said, You shall not murder. And in verse 27, he's touching on the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments when he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. The floor of the law, the bare minimum. And when the Pharisees and the scribes read the law, this is what they read and this is what they did. They didn't murder. And they didn't commit adultery. And they condemned those who did these things. And because they kept these external laws, they were able to feel good about themselves and their obedience to God's commands. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong about feeling good about keeping these commands. I mean, after all, it's commendable not to commit adultery and not to murder another person. Almost everyone in our society, Christian or non-Christian, would recognize that murder and adultery are wrong. But the problem is that we often think of our obedience to the external aspect of these commands as sufficient. As if we've kept from murder and adultery, then we're good. We're okay. In many ways, that's the very issue that Jesus is confronting in this passage. The leaders would use these commandments so that they could feel like they were worthy to make themselves feel good, particularly when it came to their relationship with God and how they related to other people. Remember, one verse earlier, Jesus said, "...unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven." And we mentioned last week that this would have been completely demoralizing to the original audience because no one exceeded the religious leaders in obedience to God's law. They were held in high esteem by these people. The Pharisees and scribes even added extra rules to God's commands just to ensure that they didn't break the original commands. They were making God's commands all about outward actions But God had always intended his commands to be kept first and foremost at the heart level. In this passage, Jesus is confronting people who've misunderstood the real purpose and intent of God's law. You see, when they made God's commands all about outward appearance and outward actions, it made it really easy to feel secure. It made it easy to feel like they were on God's good side. Don't murder, check. Don't commit adultery, check. These are fairly easy commands to keep. And just like Jesus' original listeners, we're tempted to believe that we're good people because we've kept the rules externally. Our outward appearance, our outward actions can sometimes be pretty flawless. You're a good group of people. Good group of people. And we misunderstand the intent and purpose of God's law all the time, all in order to feel better about ourselves. How do you do this? Church on Sunday, check. Give 10% of my income away to charity, check. Serve the less fortunate, check. Wait to have sex until I'm married, check. Treat my spouse and kids with kindness, check. Don't cheat in my business, check. And it's important to say that these things are good things. They're not wrong. But if we stop there, this mentality leads to a deep sense of pride and judgment because we begin to actually believe that we've kept God's commands that we've pleased Him in our own power, and it also leads us to look down on those who don't live up to our standards externally. Those who don't attend church, or those who seem to be pretty selfish with their time, or those who've made some sexual mistakes in their recent past, or those whose marriages are falling apart, or those who are dishonest in their business dealings, we look at these people and we judge them. All the while making ourselves feel better because we have kept the external law, the rules that we've set in place. It's what we do, and Jesus exposes our actions for what they are a false sense of security, a purely external obedience. It's what's known as legalism, believing that we can earn God's favor and love by our obedience. Whether you consider yourself a Christian this morning or not, we're all good at focusing on the externals so that we can feel good about ourselves, so that we can create a sense of security in our lives. But Jesus doesn't allow this legalistic mentality to stand. Jesus wants more from us than just a strict adherence to be made with a checklist in our minds. We see that Jesus focuses in on the internal aspect of keeping his commands. Jesus goes after the Pharisees and the scribes in this passage, and he goes after us as well. He flips their understanding on its head, saying that we don't work from the outside in, we work from the inside out. He isn't saying that murder and adultery are okay. They're still prohibited. God's law is still in existence. What Jesus is doing is he's deepening these commands. He is resetting the expectations of obedience back to where they always should have been, back to the heart. We see Jesus do this resetting of obedience in verse 22, where he says, But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And again, he resets the rules in verse 28 when he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In these passages, Jesus is taking uh, our focus away from the floor of the law or the bare minimum of the law. And he's forcing people to look up at the ceiling. To look up at the sky. To see the true intentions of the law. He's filling out the law and God's commands. He's going deeper. He's giving it a more full definition. He wants more for us than just to abstain from murder and adultery. He wants us to live a life of wholeness and freedom. He wants us to be quick reconcilers. He wants us to stay away from impurity so that we might experience peace and joy in life. And notice how Jesus does this on his own authority. He doesn't appeal to God when he gives these commands. His words rest on his own authority. He doesn't use the prophetic formula, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't have to because he is the Lord and he's giving true meaning to God's commands here. Now, what exactly is Jesus saying in this passage? It's important to recognize when Jesus talks about anger in this passage, he is talking about a quick blaze of anger, but he's specifically referring to a carried anger or nursing a grudge. Jesus uses a present participle in the original language to describe the action of anger in this passage, and the word specifically refers to a continued anger. A better word might be resentment. You carry resentment in your heart. This is an anger that lasts. It's a slow burn. It's not necessarily a quick blaze of anger. Jesus is putting his finger on angry people, the type of people that have anger in their hearts. And when Jesus speaks of lust, he's not necessarily talking about a quick glance at beauty. I mean, who doesn't recognize beauty when they see it and appreciate it? What the word means is a sustained, willful looking. Another word might be staring. You're staring at someone with the intention to lust. Now, if you stop and actually listen to what Jesus is saying in these verses and allow his words to sink in, you've got to be affected. Because while none of us have committed murder, and most of us have probably never committed adultery, who in this room hasn't carried a grudge? Or who hasn't looked at another person with lust in their hearts? Jesus is radically reshifting the way that we think about obedience in these verses. He says, So what if you've never committed the act? Have you ever hated someone? Have you ever lusted after someone? If so, you're guilty deserving of God's judgment. He says this because the seed of murder is anger and the seed of adultery is lust and these seeds reside in every one of our hearts. It's hatred that leads to murder and it's lust that leads to adultery. These are foundational problems. The reason we haven't committed the external acts of adultery or murder isn't because we don't have the capacity in our hearts to do it. Jesus is reminding us that we may clean up well, but it's what's inside that has the ability to undo us. We are just one step or one offer away from plunging our lives into complete and total chaos because of what resides within a few years back, I heard the story of a Tyson chicken truck that had a full load of chicken breast, and it was making its way through Missouri in the middle of summer to deliver from one uh, point to another this chicken. And this particular truck was being driven by a man with a criminal record. And for some reason, he decided to abandon this truck at a Flying J gas station in the middle of the summer with the refrigeration turned off. And as you might imagine, the refrigeration was pretty crucial to keep the chicken in the back from spoiling and from rotting. And after a few days, the truck was finally found at this Flying J uh, truck stop. The refrigeration was turned off. And before long, in the Missouri summer heat, this chicken in the back had been completely ruined. I mean, it was putrid, spoiled, all 35,000 pounds of it in the back of this truck. And so here you have this truck, looks fine on the outside, right? Looks like a normal truck, but inside it's full of rotten chicken and they've got to get a hazmat team in, they tow the truck to a garbage dump, and eventually this truck's got to be cleaned out and folks in masks and gloves are shoveling this smelly, spoiled, putrid chicken out of the inside of that truck. And I think that's a pretty good picture of our hearts. Inside, we're full of stuff that's rotting, stuff that needs to be shoveled out while wearing hazmat suits. And Jesus is putting us all in the same place with these words. Our outward actions might look fine, and all the while our hearts may be full of filth. It's our hearts that are twisted and depraved. We all have the characteristics of adulterers and murderers. Jesus is showing us who we really are in these verses. And I wonder how that sits with you this morning. How does Jesus' words sit with you? What does it mean to take Christ's words seriously here? If you're anything like me, you want to water these words down. Surely Jesus doesn't mean to liken me to an adulterer. Or a murder. Surely it's just a figure of speech that Jesus is using here. He's just using hyperbole so that we get the point. But what if it's not hyperbole? What if Jesus really means what he said? That means that you and I are far worse than we ever imagined. That means that you and I are in trouble. When obedience is taken out of the realm of the external and placed in the realm of motivations, where does that lead? Where are you going to go? We've got a few options. This is our last point. We normally do one of three things when it comes to being encountered with truth like this. Option one, you can try harder. You can make more rules. It's kind of what the Pharisees and scribes did, right? Continue to patch up and paint over your outward behavior. Continue constructing a false sense of security. We've all done this before. It looks something like this. Starting today... I promise I'm never going to go back to that website again. Or starting today, I'm only going to speak kindly to my kids. Or starting today, I'm not going to lose my temper with my spouse. Or starting today, I'll never do that when it comes to business again. So you make more rules and you put in more structure but you find yourself constantly back in the same situation as before, back at the website, back to the unkind words, back to the uncontrollable temper. Why? Because it's not about external rules. It's coming from the inside. But the second option you've got, option two, is you can just forget about it. You can hear Christ's words, you've heard them this morning, you can even grasp what he means in some ways, but you'd rather not think too much about the implications. It's really not that big a deal. Jesus can't be serious. You're not that bad. He's kind of misdiagnosing anger and lust here. And if that's you, you'll never experience the beautiful free life that Jesus wants you to experience. Because before you can experience true joy and wholeness, you've got to be willing to shine a light on what's wrong. You've got to address the problem. But there's a third option. And it's the option that Jesus wants us to take. It's the option of running to the one who is actually deconstructing your false sense of security. You can run to Jesus. You can give up your tiring efforts of trying to look good on the outside while inside you're suffocating. And that's exactly where God wants us this morning. It's the reason why he comes and why he exposes our reliance on the external. So that we might move on to true security, to rest and to rely on Jesus. See, these verses are meant to drive us back to the Beatitudes. They're meant to drive us back to the blessings that Jesus wants to give in our lives. You're supposed to hear these commands and feel your poverty. If you feel bad this morning, that might be a good place to be. To feel your failure. And then to remember who Jesus blesses. Remember? Blessed are the strong. Blessed are those who keep the rules. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who know their true condition of helplessness and failure instead of judgment, the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. The same Jesus who gives these commands also blesses the poor in spirit, those who know they can't obey. The same Jesus who issued these commands gives his life as a ransom for those who can't obey. The same Jesus who commands these seemingly impossible standards is the same one who gives us his spirit of empowering grace so that we can move out and obey once forgiven. When we hear Jesus' words here, we can keep on building on our external obedience or we can let that illusion go. We can admit that we're broken beyond what we can fix and we can run to Jesus. And he's the only one who can offer you real and lasting security. He's the only one who can cleanse us. From the inside out. And give us a new life. Characterized by peace and by purity. And that's the path Jesus lays out for us. With regard to both anger and lust. I just want to touch on this for a few seconds. Once we've received this new heart. That Jesus gives us. Once we've been driven back to the Beatitudes. Realizing our poverty. Jesus calls us to use this new heart and to move out. And instead of being angry people, we become quick reconcilers. Instead of being lustful people, Jesus calls us to avoid impurity at all costs. He touches on our responsibility to be quick reconcilers in verses 23 through 26. He says, when you're at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, stop what you're doing and you make the first move. You go to the one that you've offended or who's offended you. You be the one to pursue reconciliation. And he goes on to highlight the urgency of being a reconciler in verses 25 and 26. When Jesus urges us to come to terms with our accuser quickly. Because if we don't, there will be a time when it's too late. The bottom line is that we don't wait. We move quickly to be people of peace and reconciliation. That's the kind of change we notice in our lives when Jesus gives us new hearts and we begin living from the inside out. Jesus touches on our responsibility to avoid impurity at all costs in verses 29 to 30. He says, if your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin, cut them off and throw them away. He reasons that it's better to get rid of the members used for impurity than that your whole being be thrown into hell. And Jesus isn't here condoning bodily mutilation, but he's highlighting the seriousness of sin. That's the principle. We're called to take practical, drastic measures to avoid impurity because impurity will eventually kill us. In this passage, Jesus is really shining a spotlight on our hearts. The place that we keep hidden from other people. The birthplace of all sin and impurity. And if we want to live a whole, free, full life, you and I have to have new hearts. You and I have to have new hearts. And the good news for us is that Jesus has come to give us just that. It's what he promised by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, when God says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's what we have because of Jesus, and now we can follow him from the inside out, not worried about the external, but worried about what's happening in our hearts, experiencing purity from there and freedom in life. He wants us to forsake anger and lust, to be known as reconcilers and people of purity. It's what Jesus is calling us to, And it's possible because of his deep love for us. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for these words that call us to something grand, that call us to something better than what we normally experience. Lord, we pray that as we digest these words, that as we believe them more deeply, that it would drive us back to the Beatitudes to recognize our poverty, but then to find that our poverty is completely taken care of by your sufficiency. And we pray that that would move us, that that would compel us to go out being those who are reconcilers, those who love purity. And we pray that you would receive honor in Christ's name. Amen.